Welcome to What Do You Make of This? The podcast where two college professors go back and forth talking about some contemporary management issues, issues in management science. I'm Sean Hansen. I'm a professor of management information systems and the chair of the Department of MIS Marketing and Analytics at the Saunders College of Business at Rochester Institute of Technology in beautiful, balmy Rochester, New York. Very <laughs> balmy in February. And I'm Uri Gull. I'm a professor of business information systems at the University of Sydney Business School in beautiful Sydney, Australia. Which is actually beautiful right now because you're summertime, right? It is. Um, although a little caveat, I actually live in Melbourne. So this is coming to you straight from Melbourne, Australia, even though I work is in Sydney. The, is the climate any different between Sydney and Melbourne? It is. They say Melbourne is a bit more European in its climate. Uh, it's definitely definitely less consistent than Sydney. So we get warm days that turn into you know, cold days and we get like winter, spring, more and, seasons, and summer in more the same seasons. day. That's good. Yeah. It fluctuates like a lot. Yeah. And in your nice. neck of the woods, it's pretty miserable nine months it's quite cold year, well it's it? just no it's not miserable it's uh you know if you're a winter sports kind of person it's a great time of year it's just uh it's quite cold it's been very mild but it's quite cold so now that we've descended into talking about the weather uh this podcast is doomed <laughs> <laughs> yeah like two and a half minutes uh, into it and we're <laughs> we're done uh no, but I, I, I do want to call out one thing. We both, in, in introducing ourselves, you might have noticed that we are both information systems people by trade. You know, we teach within the discipline of information systems. But just temperamentally, uh, Uri and I tend to like to talk about lots of different things and uh, debate and and uh, thrash out. What would be the what would be the phrase? Uh, disagree. We, we like to disagree a disagree. lot. Disagree. Yeah. Disagree frequently. Yeah. With others, sort with of, each other. Just sort of bang out ideas and uh and work through ideas, particularly around contemporary phenomena. Uh obviously technology is very big in that regard, but there's all kinds of aspects of the the way we work in organizations that is fascinating and and we just want to offer managers some of our reflections on those things. And also Not I asserting... think I think it's noteworthy. Um what did you get your undergrad in? It wasn't technology related, was it? It was psychology undergraduate degree in psychology and then I did an MBA and got uh got I, I concentrated in finance right and then uh settled on information systems for my doctorate I actually and, don't think uh, I knew that that you did finance in your MBA yeah I'm a good example of a person who can't settle on a single thing <laughs> <laughs> yeah so you're not an exclusively you're not a technologist I guess is what I'm trying to say and neither am I because my undergrad was in sociology and then I did a master's in organizational psychology and I only got into IS or like technology related stuff when I when I did my PhD. And did yeah. we say that we did our PhDs together? No, we didn't. No. So that's how we know each other. That's right. Um, which, Old friendships. Yeah. More than 20 years now, right? Absolutely. We're definitely going to have to edit some of this out, which is all good. <laughs> but yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's been a it's been a couple of decades. Yeah, it's pretty crazy, man. Um, yeah. So the topic we were uh, hoping to lead off with is uh, algorithmic aversion. The concept of algorithmic aversion. Ori, do you want to go ahead and give uh, a little overview of the concept? Yeah, I think the concept, the way it's uh, it's used in the academic literature, might not mean very much to um, people who are not from within 
this academic community. But I think what we what we want to talk about, generally speaking, is the increasing use of various types of AI applications in business. And I, I think it's kind of safe safe to say that in the last decade or decade and a half, we've seen a an increase in the supply of and demand for various forms of um, predictive algorithms and AI tools that are said to um, make management a more objective endeavor, right? To kind of um, get rid yeah. of all the subjective, um, um, biased way of thinking that we, um, you know, or humans um, inevitably have to descend to and introduce a more evidence-based objective way of making decisions in, in business. And so a lot of the things you just said, I think, are, are a little bit loaded, and I want to get into those actually a little already, bit. I, I already, already. I think it is worth noting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. <laughs> um, I think it is worth noting that we're we are not going to be the 1,000th uh, pair of people to go down a discussion of chat GPT. But we are talking, we're raising this issue right in the wake of, you know, about a, two months out from the explosive launch of chat GPT that got all that attention. And I think it is sort of raising this question of sort of AI-based uh, decision support and things like that and, and what it will do and what it won't do and what it will replace and what it won't replace. Um, so I think it's quite timely. One thing that, that that occurs to me is when we talk about algorithmic aversion or algorithmic decision support, things like that, a lot of people won't know what we mean by algorithm or algorithmic. We sort of take it for granted, I think. Is so, this a prompt for me to say something about it? Uh, no, I, I, I can go ahead and field the idea. I, I think it's important to sort of, you know, what do we mean by an, an algorithm is something that has much older pedigree mm -hmm. than um, than contemporary digital systems. It, you know, it means a set of rules or a set of a procedure by which one makes a computation, completes a computation. But it and has when, become when you say one, do you mean not even necessarily a computer? Uh, no, I, a human. I meant one in the sense of uh, a person. Mm how one does things. Mm -hmm. um, and I mean, certainly it could be a computer, but it, absolutely a person, right? Like algorithms exist within mathematics. But the per the point is, is that it has algorithm and algorithmic has come to sort of represent the shorthand for digital technologies and artificial intelligence and, um, you know, uh, digital decision support tools. And, and what do we mean when we, when we talk about a version? So, I think it's kind of interesting to put this in, in a broader context. So like, like we started saying before, uh, a growing number of businesses have started implementing um, various types of, of algorithmic AI technologies in, in the organizations to either support various business decisions that they make. Um, one primary area, primary area where this is done is um, HR, where mm -hmm. you have a bunch of different applications, commercial applications, cloud applications, different types of them that are meant to help HR managers hire people, promote people, make decisions about you know, who to give a raise to, um, who to fire, um, who's mo most likely to, likely to quit within the next 12 months and, and things of that nature. Yeah. Um, yeah. And so algorithmic aversion, uh, as that term has been used, uh, basically means the, the observed preference that human beings, human actors have for uh, other humans in decision environments, in making decisions uh, over 
algorithms over the 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 AI systems, the computational tools, right? Yeah. So as this phenomenon has become more and more prominent and more businesses have started using various types of AI technologies, academics have gotten into the field and started researching how people use different types of AI technologies. And, and one sort of repeated phenomenon that they've observed in their research is that oftentimes people, when they, when they would be faced with an option to either follow algorithmic advice or alg algorithmic output or prediction or whatever the output is, um, versus a human output, they would choose the human output over the algorithmic one. Hence the yeah. the notion of aversion. Yeah, right. Um, so what do you make of it? That's a very broad question, but what do, what's your take? So what do you make of it? So part of the unique um, aspect, I hope, I think, of this podcast is that rather than just spit out our opinions about different things. We're going to delve into the relevant academic literature and scientific research um, and give everybody uh, a taste of what we think are some of the most relevant insights um, about the topic at hand. Um, and today we're talking about aversion. So what do I make of this? Let's let's see what some of the researchers and academics and, and scientists that have been studying algorithmic, algorithmic aversion um, have found, about it, found out about it. So I think the first, the first researcher, um, I think it's the least, I think it's the person who actually coined the term algorithmic aversion, is um, a researcher by the name of, of Divorst. I think I'm pronouncing. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. And in his initial study, I would have said Dietforst, but we can probably work that one out. Oh, I, I apologize. Um, but, and I also, interestingly, I think it has. I, I think even they uh, suggest that there is an older. Uh, origin for the phrase itself but this is sort of in its current manifestation yeah so uh, there's certainly right. certainly the literature on people's preference for um human advice over algorithm algorithmic advice goes back i think to the 1940s or 50s but it certainly wasn't um termed as algorithmic aversion um and and the type of technologies that they were looking at were very different but ne ne nevertheless, that, that study um, that we're talking about now, I believe, was conducted in 2015. Or 20, it was published in 2016, I think. And, and what that paper found was that when um, people were exposed to algorithmic output, recommendation or prediction, and a human output, they preferred the human output over the algorithmic output, specifically after they've observed the, out the, algorithmic, the algorithm rather, make an error in judgment or prediction. And the interesting right, right. finding of that study was that when people saw the algorithm make a, an error, that made them much more reluctant to use the algorithm than when they saw the human make an error. Right. So in that study, both the humans and the algorithms made errors routinely. Correct. Because it was a prediction task. And so they weren't perfect in their prediction of outcomes. Um, but those errors were held against the algorithmic tool, uh, whereas they were not held against the human actors, the, the, the human predictors. Yeah. So the participants, the human participants judged the algorithm much more severely than they did the, the human output. And by is... judged more severely, we mean they actually uh, put their money where their mouth is, meaning within the study, they were allowed to, uh, subsequent to their initial judgment assessments, they were allowed to then essentially wager on future predictions, whose predictions would they want to follow? 
and they put their money, uh, their ability to earn additional compensation with the humans rather than the algorithms. So it was, um, there was an incentive structure that would, that would suggest that they, they might be biased toward the algorithm because throughout the study, the algorithms were in fact more accurate always mm -hmm. than the humans. And still the human participants chose to chose to side with other human predictors. Was there any, um, any element in the study in terms of the interpretation of the results that said anything about the way participants perceived the algorithm versus the humans as one being more. So I, what I'm getting at is that yeah. I, I believe that, that, that they said that the reason people judged the algorithm most severely is that they didn't expect the algorithm to make mistakes. Right. Right. Which I, th I think, um, I think there's a certain intuitiveness to this, right? Yeah. Like there's a reason that the phrase to err is human is part of our, you know, uh, it's a truism um, that, that we expect human beings to, to make mistakes or to not be perfect in prediction. But somehow we expect our algorithmic tools to be perfect. And if they're not, then I think, you know, we one might posit multiple explanations, but I think one simple one is we think, well, it's a, it's a poorly designed algorithm or it's a defective right. algorithm if it can't get the answer whereas if a human can't predict the future we would hardly say that's indicative of a of a def defective human being right yeah and that and so maybe the choice then is well we're not going to wager on a defective human being it, similarly and and um just to keep us moving along there's other studies uh some some subsequent studies do you mean a study by um offended at all Yes, yes. So that yeah, that study had uh, a, so a similar finding that, that I think is kind of interesting in a way, because they they looked at the response time of the of the algorithm and they tested how variations in the response time impact on people's aversion towards the algorithm's output, and they found yeah. that and and they they compared it with aversion to um human output as well. Similar to Deepverse at all, they also compared. Uh, as you said, human to, to algorithmic performance and worked in delays in both cases. Yeah. And, and again, one of the really interesting things is when there is a delay, humans are, are the judgment of humans is increased when there is a delay, whereas judgment of the algorithm is decreased when That's there right. is a delay. Yeah. Um, which again, I don't, I did not find that terribly counterintuitive. You know, I think when we see humans take a long time to make a decision, we read into that um, judiciousness or deliberation, right? Mm -hmm. Whereas when we when we have a computer making a decision and taking a long time to make it, we think, you know, who programmed this thing? What what's going on with this thing? Yeah, I, I agree. Um, I don't think it's counterintuitive at all. I think it gets to the same point as the initial study, which is that the way we perceive algorithms is fundamentally fundamentally different to the way we perceive people, which is not really surprising. And, you know, when the algorithm takes longer to produce an output, we interpret this as, whoa, maybe something is buggy in the code here and we shouldn't trust whatever it is that they're saying. Whereas when a, a human expert is taking their time to produce a, an answer or an output, we think, oh, they're thinking really hard about the issue. The, the, you know, they must, they must know what they're talking about. Sure. Or yeah. even, you know, at a checkout line, right? If you have a human person bagging the groceries and they're taking a hard time or taking a long time, you think, okay, the person's having a hard day. 
if the machines aren't recording our uh, transactions quickly, we think uh, maybe I need to shop elsewhere. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Uh, well, with some people anyway, other people are just right. kind of shitty towards other people. Uh, <laughs> true enough. So now we establish a precedent, whether or not we swear on the show, I say pro. Oh yeah. I didn't, oh, okay. even, I didn't even think that you was don't a even consider shitty to be a swear word. Good. Fair not enough. even that, but yeah, I didn't even yeah. think that was something that we needed to discuss. It just that would. Well, certainly we swear enough in our regular conversations. That's true. Um, yeah, so although, these, yeah. these are good examples. These are certainly good examples of this, this broader pattern that, that starts to emerge within the research literature saying in general, human beings prefer the judgments of other human beings over those of machines, even when there's evidence to suggest that it is uh, less accurate, that the human action is less accurate. Um, now, I am unpersuaded. I am I'm not entirely persuaded of this pattern. Say more, please. Um, I see evidence and and we will get to some research that suggests there might be reason to question it as well. But I see evidence in lots of aspects of our lives where we are more than happy to put our trust in the algorithms. Mm. Right? You know, when we when we plug a destination into our GPS and we have our uh, GPS software map the best route, we trust the best route. We assume it knows the shortest route and we take it. Mm-hmm. Unless you're Michael Scott, you know, it's not a Michael Scott where you're turning into the lake uh, just because the GPS is telling you to turn into the lake. <laughs> um, I don't know if you get office references. You, you're very good for Seinfeld references. I don't know if the office references. <laughs> no, I, actually, I, I, I remember that one. Yeah. Yeah. Um, um, but in general, you know, we, we, there's lots of domains in which we're more than happy to to trust the, the sure around us, and, and there we are many instances do it over human beings. Yeah, and there are many instances where we use algorithms without even being explicitly aware that we're using an algorithm. You know, um, many people, I'm sure, use Spotify and listen to music without really understanding or knowing what is the engine behind the the recommendation machine that puts songs in front of them. So I don't know that there's much of a uh, you know an explicit deliberation about should we trust a the recommendations or should we not? We just follow what the algorithm tells us to do. Now that's interesting. Do you think there are domains and uh, I'm sure we could come up with examples where people think they are following the recommendations of other humans, but in reality, they're following the recommendations of an algorithm. So Amazon, I think is an interesting case because I believe maybe Amazon, maybe eBay, one of those, um, it used to be, maybe it still is. I'm not sure that the actual language that they put on the screen is this is what other people who bought this product also bought or were interested in. And that's what it recommends to you. So maybe the language is a bit misleading, maybe even intentionally a bit misleading to make people think Actually, I don't know that that's misleading. It it is algorithmic. Oh, yeah, yeah. But it is an algorithm driven by the behavior of other human beings. But it emphasizes other people. Right. It doesn't say this is what the algorithm, you know, found out after searching through billions of, of lines of data or whatever it is. Yeah. So yeah. it emphasizes well, the human aspect of that, it. Something that is, that's actually a phenomenon that I think is is referenced in the literature as well, where uh, firms will will frame the recommendations that they offer as though they are driven by other humans or experts, hmm. even though they are in fact algorithmic in origin. Sure. Yeah. And uh, there's this... Um... Now that assumes that if even if we don't believe, even if we might question some of the evidence for algorithmic aversion, certainly uh, 
firms appear to be making making marketing decisions based on the assumption that that people do have an aversion to algorithms. So you asked an interesting question before, which is the you, you mentioned the domain of application, which is where is the algorithm used? What kind of decisions are we asking it or using it um, to predict? And you mentioned the GPS example. Um, you could even think about automatic pilots in airplanes that have been in use since, I don't know, 60s, 70s for a long, long mm -hmm, time. Mm -hmm. And I haven't heard many people complain about having to fly in airplanes that are driven by computers, essentially. But, but that's what a great example. But, but that's a great example. I don't think most people know that the vast majority of the flights they're on are not guided by a pilot, human pilot. You don't think people know that? No, I don't. Uh, but I, I think most people have not known that, did not, do not know that. But even those who do, I, I, I'm not sure that there's much controversy there about whether or not should I should I or shouldn't I trust the algorithm that drives the that flies the plane? Oh, I but, wonder. I, but when so you get into domains, question. when you get yeah, that's true. But well. But it's. I think it's been answered because everyone, everybody flies pretty much. Or many right, but that fly. assumes that everyone knows the, this whole. All oh, right. Uh, my assertion that people don't know that the majority of the flight. Uh, my understanding is that other than takeoff and landing, that's true. Um, the the majority of any given flight is handled by the autopilot system. Unless something goes wrong. Uh, and, but and I don't think yeah. most people are aware of that. Now, if you're right that most people are aware of that and they accept it, um, then I think that that certainly well the reason the reason I say it is because the the term automatic pilot has been kind of so popularized. People use it in different ways in different contexts. Yeah, so I just yeah, figure that people know that point. the system exists. But my point was so there are there are domains where the use of these tools is fairly non-problematic, right? Like using a GPS or flying a plane. Mm -hmm. But what happens when you start using algorithms to make decisions in domains that are more rife with, you know, charged ethical questions like making medical decisions? Right, or, right. Right, or... Um, uh, driverless sen cars. Driverless cars. Right. Or sentencing yeah. people. Yeah, you know, things yeah. Of that nature. So I think, I think this is a... This is a huge uh, dividing line, and again, we have we have research. Um, some of the research, even that we've uh, explored, leading up to our discussion today, but uh, I think there's a fair amount of research that says it's particularly with regard to moral or morally weighted decisions that people have uh, experience aversion to the algorithmic tool. Yeah. So there's um, this one study from 2018 by. Bigman and Gray that, that examine exactly this. They looked at various ethically charged domains, um, medicine, military, and law. The, these were the three contexts where they examined people's preference for algorithms versus humans. Um, and they found pretty strong aversion to algorithmic output in all of these three domains across the board. And specifically, all these three domains are quite significantly ethically charged. Yeah, right. Of course. Um, and and they found interestingly that this aversion was driven um, to a large degree by what they call mind, which is people's perception of the degree to which the algorithm algorithm has expertise and agency, right? Agency, right? So agency, agency is another word that we use a lot in um, 
in sort of uh, research environments in our environments. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that's not a, a an immediately uh, interpretable term for most people. So do you want to explain what you mean by agency? Uh, well, that's that's another very charged term. Yeah. But I guess in the most colloquial way, um, it implies that an entity that makes a decision, be it a technology or a human being, has a clear intention behind the act that they're taking. And can initiate action independently. Yeah. In order to achieve the objective that they have, right? Some so then, end. Yeah. Yeah. So there's an objective, an end in, in sight, and there's some kind of a, a deliberative action being taken to achieve that end. So that, that's kind of a, a pretty simplistic. Uh, concise, maybe not necessarily overly simplistic, but concise explanation of what agency is. Um, and and what that study found was that people perceive algorithms to have less agency than, than human beings. Yeah. In, in these um, morally charged domains. Right. Uh, and and to be lacking in what is framed as mind, right? And, and I, this seems to degree to me, this seems somewhat tautological, right? Uh, Oh, well, we're using a lot of big words here. <laughs> it, seems, it's a, it seems almost self-referential or or definitional, right? Meaning, uh, did you say that human beings perceive less mind in the algorithm? Well, um, if you define the mind as sort of human emotional evaluation and and uh, moral judgment making, then of course they're going to perceive less mind in the algorithm it's it's sort of the definition of the algorithm is that it lacks the human forms of moral evaluation i wonder you know when you say that it makes me think about whether some of the aversion that that these studies have found and i think many many of us kind of feel intuitively that we we have i wonder if this is gonna fade away with time when at least two things happen one is when we become used to having these algorithmic machines all around us and they and using them kind of becomes second nature Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. and secondly when these technologies get increasingly sophisticated so that they feel sound and look like us right Um, absolutely well now that's an interesting question um until the look sound and act and look like us piece i was with you uh, I might diverge from you on that last one, oh, on those last elements. So I, I agree with you. I think in domains where we have been using these things for an extended period of time, uh, we do tend to um, tend to be more trusting of the tools. And actually, an, another piece that we looked at in this, I will say, I'll put sort of my cards on the table. This was the study that I found most compelling and sort of insightful, um, was a, a study in organizational behavior and human decision processes by uh, Log, Minson, and Moore. And one of the things they note is that, uh, and this is this is about uh, something they refer to as algorithmic appreciation, which is the very inverse of algorithmic aversion that says there seem to be domains in which we do favor the input of the algorithms. What are uh, these and, domains? And one of the, well, so one of the simple examples that they give at the outset is weather forecasts, right? Uh, if we see a weather forecast based on a you know uh, elaborate modeling of the weather, we're going to tend to trust that much more much more significantly than if our next door neighbor comes over and says, "Oh, you know my my knees kind of aching. It's gonna it's gonna rain tomorrow. You can feel it." The but well, what do you think the reason is? Do you think it's because people have a 
a deep appreciation for the immense sophistication required to make decisions about or predictions about the weather. No, so, so I think some or of the is it because we're emerged. so used to having these technologies in this in this space that we've kind of been normalized to using them. So I think some of it is certainly the uh, growing accustomed to the uh, to the technologies within a given domain that we are we are accustomed to the use of uh, algorithms in weather prediction and and have discovered that it's much more accurate. You know, when I was a child, it was sort of a joke how inaccurate weather forecasting was. And we've discovered that it tends to be pretty good even a couple of days out. So I do think, I think a, a major element is people growing accustomed to the use of a, a tool in a given environment. Um, and this is the pattern with all technologies, right? That uh, at the outset, people are very skeptical. You have laggards eventually with adoption and patterns of success, more and more people get on board. In the case of weather forecasting, I think it's quite clear that the accuracy is much higher and therefore people are, of course, going to trust the systems more. So now, was, that the, of, was that their main finding in that paper, the log paper? No, no. Their main finding was um, uh, contradicting some earlier patterns of uh, algorithmic aversion, uh, saying that consistently across several experiments, uh, when when given the option to choose advice from either an algorithmic advisor or a human advisor, their, their subjects chose the advice of um, an algorithmic advisor, algorithmic tool. And actually to me, this, this jumps out as one of the key differentiators, um, which is that there is a filtering, right? There is the, the human actor gets the choice and gets to take the advice and then make still make their own decision, right? They don't have to simply go with one or the other. They're taking the advice. They're saying, which advice would you prefer? But they are still, they still have a sense of control. So I think this principle of control, maintaining some element of human control, I think is a huge element of the algorithmic aversion question that in context where maybe a sense of control is lost, mm -hmm. um, the, the aversion to the algorithmic input is likely to go up. Yeah. Uh, one of the examples of this that just to me jumps out in a big way is um, Waymo, which I believe is what Google's autonomous vehicle project became. I think they renamed it Waymo. Waymo had a couple different designs of their cars and some of them had a steering wheel and some of the, them didn't. And I, you know, in classes and whatnot, I'll fr frequently show videos from this project and Every time you show a picture of the or video of the car without the steering wheel, people bristle at it. The idea of getting into a car that will drive itself, but which you have no mechanism for taking control of, freaks people out, right? Yeah, yeah. And Whereas I think even if even if they're saying, "Okay, fine, I'll let the car take me from one point to another," but there's a I see a steering wheel there, and I feel like, well, God, if I had to, I could take control. That gives people a sense of. Um, uh, no, control I think over their environment. Yeah. I think you're onto something. And I and one of the other studies actually made a similar point, and and that was one of the variables they manipulated in one of their experiments, which is to give people the option to um, make changes to the output of the algorithm. Mm -hmm. And what they saw was when that option was given to people, even to make slight differences or changes to the algorithm, not significant ones, their aversion was reduced. 
So I think it's probably yeah. the case that when people feel like they have some level of control over the situation or the um, you know computerized aid that they're getting from whatever tool they're using, um, the mo- mo- less likely to be resistant to using it, which stands to reason. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So if we were to try and, and distill the conversation that we've had so far, um, into and the few, literature, and the literature, into a few kind of um, actionable insights that people could take away from this. What are they so far? Where are we at? Sean? Yeah. So, so to me, some key takeaways uh, for managers would be um, to start the experimentation. To you know, to while algorithmic aversion may be a legitimate phenomenon. Um, I think it behooves managers to start to explore ways in which algorithmic tools can be leveraged to, you know, enhance the things they do. But in that exploration, to pay particular attention to maintaining some sort of mechanisms for human oversight, right? Right. That control element. So you can use tools to inform human decision-making, but not simply automate the decision-making to override the human input and element. So, so I think that's one significant can, can I just, observation. Um, I so just to make sure that we're on the same page here, you're saying by all means, use the technology, bring it in, um, leverage the, the advantages it offers, be it increased sophistication of analysis or accuracy or predictive powers or whatever the case is. But make sure that in doing that, you don't entirely cut off the, the human element from the decision-making process and make people feel like they're not, not just feel, you know, make them part of the of the process in a in a meaningful substantive way in order to reduce that potential yeah, aversion absolutely. we talked about yeah right right so that reduces the aversion of members of the organization let's say or clients customers of the of the organization if they know that some of the uh decisions or recommendations are being driven by algorithms I also think there is a an ethical case to be made there one of the things we know and this goes beyond the literature we're looking at this evening or uh, in this particular discussion, um, uh, but we 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 know that uh, algorithmic tools sometimes embed prior bias, right? So uh, algorithmic tools in policing, for example, embed patterns of policing that, even though it looks objective because it's based on data, data doesn't mean objective. If that data is also based on prior patterns that had bias built into them then the data will, or sorry, then the bias will replicate itself and will embed embed itself in those recommendations. And so I think there is an ethical argument to say there should be a human oversight mechanism maintained as we start to explore and adopt these tools. So there's both a practical and an ethical imperative to having human oversight and and active participation in the the decision-making process, even when you do have these technologies in place. Right, yeah, right. I, yeah. Okay. And I think a second important takeaway for me is that these questions are particularly important around morally intensive questions, right? So we see that very clearly, that that's where the aversion is greatest, when it's something that deals with um, with sort of ethical dilemmas or could potentially deal with ethical dilemmas. If it is, you know, guiding simple, uh, relatively simple things like predicting the weather, Um we're much more likely to trust it if it's going to, you know, inform how a physician develops a treatment plan for 
her patients, then that changes the dynamic altogether. And certainly so raises raises the level of algorithmic aversion, which I think for managers means um, think about the types of applications that you're proposing to use these tools in. And if there is a significant ethical dimension, then then tread with caution. And, so, and yeah, so there's um, this brings up a, an interesting point to me, which is the the literature that we've discussed so far. And in fact, I think the vast majority of literature studies that have been done on this phenomenon aversion treat aversion as an obstacle that we should overcome. Right. The some of them say it explicitly, right, others right. Im implicitly they say, you know, the output of the algorithm is demonstrably better, more accurate, more objective, you know, because the algorithm doesn't get tired. He doesn't right, know that this right. applicant went to school with them and therefore they they want to do him a favor and bring him over or whatever the case is right the algorithm right. is, is yeah. it's a workhorse you know they they do what they do and and we know that it's, it's somewhat reliable and we can trust it it's so a calculation aversion is bad we need to um do away with it and and figure out a way to make people um more inclined to so use I, I will say that exact position is i think that's one of the things that i was going to bristling at at the very beginning of our discussion where you said you know basically people should move toward reliance on algorithms or something to that effect that you know move away from this error prone human tendency and that is embedded within a lot of the literature this assumption that really we should almost normative statements right statements of what we should do we should rely on the algorithms because we get higher accuracy. And even though I don't, uh, I, I don't doubt that assertion that the, that the algorithms are more accurate, kind of bristle at it individually. And maybe that's my own algorithmic aversion. But this assumption that 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 the machines are always going to make the better decision or or uh, lead us to the better outcome it seems specious to me. So let, let me try and, and cast more content into it because I, I think I, I agree with what you're saying. One thing that this literature says in one way or another is that we need to do away with human intuition because human intuition is not reliable. We cannot, we cannot trust it. It's based on cognitive shortcuts. And like we said before, people are inherently subjective and you know we cannot be trusted to make good objective decisions over time. We just is cannot. there a difference between human intuition and human judgment? I think judgment can be the product of intuition. Okay. But anyway, that's a discussion we can have another time. But the, Okay, <laughs> fair enough. I think. But the point I was going to make is that intuition, with all its problematic aspects, and keeping in mind that it's not necessarily objective, whatever that word means, we can unpack it later maybe. Um, there's something to say about intuition. And to me... And by the way, this is backed by a lot of research that dates back to, again, the 40s and the 50s. It is an expression of extremely profound expertise in a given space. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the most obvious, maybe the most famous example that people, people use to um, demonstrate this point is um, chess masters. Because when you ask a chess master mm -hmm. to reproduce and, and try to rationalize why they, they moved a certain piece in a certain way, oftentimes they wouldn't be able to give you an explicit explanation because it was an intuitive decision that they took. Um, and you, you can't just verbalize the parameters that you relied on to make that decision because it's so deeply embedded within you, within your brain and the way that you think and, and um, sometimes even patterns of behavior, depending on what the expertise is, 
Um, if you think about an expert musician, right? And why did you move your fingers in a certain way to produce this this sound on your violin? There's no way that an expert could would be able to reproduce what they did and explain to why they they did this vibrato this way and not the other way. It's something that's right. so deeply embedded in our brains and in our bodies that we cannot explicitly verbalize this. Yeah, sometimes it gets captured with phrases like muscle memory, which is muscle memory or being not a flow. very scientifically. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. Um, Interestingly, to me, there are parallels here with some of the emerging technology around artificial intelligence. You know, when you have deep learning systems where sometimes the deep the neural network, the patterns that emerge are not auditable, meaning the human beings can't go back and say, all right, what factors did this algorithm base its decision on? Mm-hmm. And so it's, to a certain degree, that's very similar to, you know, the, the the musician or the chess master who couldn't explicitly justify their decision. Uh, sometimes mm-hmm. the, the device or the tool also can't explicitly justify its uh, decision rule. True. Um, maybe there's a certain obscureness that's, that's shared by the way um, these networks make their decisions and human make their decisions, but I'm not convinced that we can call the computerized version of it intuition in the same sense of the word that I have in mind. Right. Um, and I yeah. think one, one particular way, and but one <laughs> particular way, this, um, these two um, thought processes, and I'm even reluctant to call the computerized version of it, a thought process, because I'm not sure that computers think in you know, the strict sense of the word is extremely analytical right? They, they examine. So if you think about image recognition systems, um, the way that they work is that they they examine each pixel individually to figure out what's there. And then they put the whole picture together and, and, and judge the degree to which it, it resembles whatever it is it's asked to, um, to identify. Whereas we are intuitively, we're, um, we look at things holistically. When I look at your face in front of me i don't try to analyze each individual pore in your skin here it comes here it comes (laughs) and then combine it together to a giant shiny head um (laughs) that that, that's not the way we recognize other people we just see them as a as a whole and because we've seen that face so many times before we instantly recognize it so it's a very different process top down versus down up or whatever you want to call that synthetic versus analytic I think this is why the the idea of focusing on sort of uh, collaborative use of tools or, you know, leveraging uh, algorithmic uh, tools uh, to help us enhance the way we work rather than focusing primarily on automation or, you know, replacement, um, I think, I think is, is pretty key. Yeah. So that's, and, I think- you know, just to close the loop quickly on chat GPT, I've heard some discussions recently about it. Um, where the tool makes absolutely silly, absurd mistakes, and uh, and that's the kind of thing that if 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 my students next semester think that they can simply uh, you know, use the device to uh, use the ChatGPT to to write their essays, I'm gonna find you. I'm pulling a Joe Biden. I'm leaning in and whispering. <laughs> that's interesting because I'm starting to teach. And I, I'm gonna figure it out. In a, that sounded like Trump more than like Biden. <laughs> I'm starting to teach in a couple of weeks, and I I've been kind of wrecking my head about how to how do I tackle this because um, some of my main assignments um, is an essay, 
a take-home essay and how how am I gonna yeah, keep right. my students from using chat GPA but that might be an interesting point you know you can um, use it but you know be aware that you might be spewing out complete nonsense yeah but yeah, okay sure. so the first takeaway just to recap what we said in the last few minutes is by all means you can use these technologies if you if you feel like they offer you I would go further. I think managers should be trying to use these technologies, should consider ways that they can apply them within their organizations. Yes, I agree. Um, with the caveat that we don't want them entirely replacing human beings in the decision-making process because both of the ethical and the practical reasons that we went, mentioned before. Yeah, and part of that practical is that you might have members of your organization experience the very algorithmic aversion we've talked about tonight, right? Yeah. Where they, they will resist the use of the tool if they don't feel that there's some level of control maintained by the human. And I think another another actionable point that we can make that that um, was find, found out by at least one of the papers that, um, um, that we discussed, the, the Bigman and Gray paper, which is it's been found out, or uh, at least one of the papers, uh, apologies for sounding repetitive, that if you delegate the algorithm to a, uh, an advisory role rather than a decision-making role, people's aversion to using it go down, right. which is consistent right. with what with what we've talked about before. Sure. But that's another thing that, that managers um, may want to keep in mind. When you do implement these technologies, make sure that they don't entirely replace people making decisions. And again, I would make yes, the same point absolutely. that we made before, which is that this recommendation comes with both practical and ethical um, um, backing, I would say. Absolutely. Good. So, okay, as we close out, we're going to introduce in this first episode a standing segment that hopefully runs for a long time. We'll see. We're going to call it Some of My Favorite Things. this element we're just going to talk about some of some offer some of our recommendations for things that people might want to check out each week we'll cover a different category and i believe this week we wanted to start since this is the first episode of this podcast with uh, a podcast i'm going to go with my one of my favorites uh and uh it, it feels a little silly on a podcast like this in its inaugural episode to be recommending one that's already quite popular and uh and uh, has uh, innumerable listeners already, but it's called 99% Invisible, and it's a podcast on uh, design, all different aspects of design. As a big fan of design domains, uh, I love it. I can listen to it, listen to episodes end on end. And what what's the, so, do they, does he have interviews with people or is it a solo thing? Uh, no, it's usually a produced episode where they will pick a given topic. Some uh, it could be a design artifact, it could be a cityscape, it could be some aspect of certain architectural environments. But it's always some topic within design. There's a couple members of the group who will sometimes uh, go and build the story. So I think it uh, has its origins in a uh, Bay Area radio station. Mm -hmm. uh so uh, so it has a little bit of that well-produced feel right but it's it's really good stuff for anyone who's interested in design it's can't be beat right so i i've had some time to think about my answer 
And my recommendation for a podcast is um, an Australian podcast, in fact, um, hosted by Josh Zips. I don't know if many people have heard about the name outside of Australia. He's a radio broadcaster here. And the name of the podcast is Uncomfortable Conversations. And oh, nice. Yeah. So he has guests over to discuss various cultural issues and um, social topics that uh, tend to be quite controversial. And he's pretty fearless in just, you know, getting right in there and, and saying things that you wouldn't be able to say on mainstream TV. How so, uncomfortable are the conversations, though? Because I got to say, I, I have this thing where I cringy things, just I can't deal with them. Like cringe? much as I love. Uh, keep going. So I, I, I'm willing to wager that you are a big fan of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Um, that's correct. Curb Your Enthusiasm, I'm so conflicted because I find it hilarious, and yet it makes me crawl out of my skin. Really? And so I'm just curious, Is how uncomfortable are the uncomfortable conversations? Well, you know, the thing that the way that this works is that he wouldn't he wouldn't challenge his guests to the point of discomfort. I think he would to start with would have guests would have somewhat unconventional views on a specific topic, and then with them he would kind of drill into the issue um, and trying to critically explore it from from angles that you don't usually see in in other mainstream media. So I don't I don't think I well for what it's worth I don't find it cringe worthy. Um, well, but, then I'm eager to check it out. Yeah, but that there aren't many things that I find cringe worthy. <laughs> um, Oh, you like, certainly no, see the cringe and curb, right? Yeah, but you know, like like with um like with algorithmic technologies, you get used to it and you get over yeah. it, and then it's just <laughs> hilarious. Um, yeah, okay, Larry David. Well, is, I'll, uh, I'll take your chance. recommendation for sure. Great. Well, I think um, we, I think we can wrap it up. Let's wrap it up. Good, good discussion, and uh, and we'll we'll talk to everyone next week with something new to to ask the question. What do you make of it? Good. See you, Sean. Later.